Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Now, as you might have just heard me say, this is a podcast, and as such, I am contractually obligated to talk about the movie Cats. I've put it off for as long as I can, in part because I haven't yet seen the movie, and in another part because it scares me. I was mildly traumatized by the stage production as a child. So many Ben Vereen from Zoobly Zoo looking actors coming out through the audience, hinting that they might try to interact with the audience. I've said it before, the fourth wall is a load-bearing wall. But this discussion can be put off no longer. I received my letter yesterday from the Federal Podcasting Agency, and if I don't discuss cats soon, then I'm going to lose my license. I'll have to turn in my microphone and the badge that I made myself and have them on my podcast sergeant's desk by Monday. So here's the thing about the movie Cats, which, again, I have not yet seen. I think it is safe to say that this movie is a genuine cultural phenomenon. It is being discussed on every podcast, it is all over the media, it is constantly being parodied, dissected, and discussed. And yet, it is a box office flop. Despite the fact that everyone is talking about this movie, a relatively small percentage of people are actually going out and seeing it. So that would imply that this is nearly perfectly marketed, but with one fatal flaw, because they're generating the buzz, just not the desired call to action. So here's what I think they got right. This movie, and this phenomena surrounding the movie, is a nostalgia turducken. It calls back to several previous eras, which people like to believe were better times. And as the waves of nostalgia increase, we have to go back farther and farther. It's what's called the accelerated Brian Setzer phenomenon. It's called that by me in a phrase that I just made up. But in the 80s, Brian Setzer was in a band called The Stray Cats, which was a 50s revival band. And then in the 90s, he went back to swing revival, so trying to bring back the 40s, and so forth. I believe right now he's somewhere wearing a pompadour hitting a bone against a monolith. Now, the eras that the Cats movie is able to call back to are... The 80s, when the stage production was wildly popular and traumatized me. The 30s, when the source material, T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, first came out. And, of course, the Renaissance, when people didn't actually know what cats looked like, and so the paintings all had cats with human faces. And on those levels, it succeeds, and that is why everyone is talking about this movie. Now, why aren't people actually going and seeing the movie? Well, a certain percentage of people like myself are scared of Ben Vereen from Zoobly Zoo. But I think on a larger scale, the problem with the nostalgia turducken that is Cats is the same problem with the actual turducken, and the problem with the world in general. Not enough dead birds. We need more nostalgia jammed in there, going back even farther. Which is why I am pitching Hollywood my new musical, Dayglow Rockabilly Pirate Plague Doctors. It's based on a zine Ezra Pound put out in the 20s. So hit me up, Hollywood. I'll be right here, still having a podcast, 
because I talked about cats as per my government mandate. Thanks. Now that that's out of the way, without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Osvaldo Ayola. A couple of Zen monks fought over a cat. One said he's mine, two disputed that. A third showed up to wear his sandals like a hat. But it was too late, the master had chopped press. Yes, sandals on a head could have certainly stopped this. This story makes no sense. It's a Zen synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Osvaldo. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 12, September 1985. Sins of the Past. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Stan Watch, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Nightwing, Cyborg, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Jericho, Beast Boy, Cole, and Zack Wingman. Previously in the New Teen Titans. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, our heroes encountered an amnesiac alien angel who they never figured out a name for, so Corey and I decided to call Zack Wingman. Zack became infatuated with occasional teen titan and temperamental telepath Lilith, and as a result joined the titans in an assault on Mount Olympus to rescue the sporadically psychic super teen from her dickhead mom. When the dust from this deific Donnybrook settled, our titular teenagers were triumphant, but Lilith decided to stay on Mount Olympus and be a Greek god. A heartbroken Zack Wingman flew off for parts unknown, but fortunately, during their mythological misadventures, the gang picked up a spare member, a new recruit named Cole, who has magical nonsense crystal powers. Gadzooks! Will we ever learn Zack Wingman's name? Will his tumultuous time with the Titans discourage Zack from future group activities? And does the content of this recap indicate that this issue will be largely focused on a certain forgetful flying fellow? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so yes, but I'm probably going to keep calling him Zack. He almost immediately joins a cult, so I'm going to say it's a no to that one. And actually, no, he only appears on one page. It's just that this issue is largely a self-contained detective story. Hope that's not too big a disappointment to the Zack Pack. Which is what I assume Zack Wingman would call his fan club. If he had one. And also if anybody but me and Corey called him Zack. Dick Grayson is just getting out of the shower when he hears a disturbance in the living room. Concerned that it might be a supervillain, he rushes out to investigate. Turns out, it is not a supervillain after all. So that's a relief. No, it's just a perfectly ordinary little blonde girl wearing an old-timey dress and singing a little rhyme about how she knows what Dick's alter ego is. Nothing unsettling about that. The girl skips out into the hallway, and concerned that the child might jeopardize his secret identity, Dick pursues, still dripping wet from the shower and wearing only a towel. Yeah, good call, Dick. The best way to ensure that no one investigates your civilian identity is definitely to run naked into a hallway yelling, Get back into my apartment, little girl! You can tell he picked up the basics of subtlety and discretion from a billionaire who dresses up like a flying rodent. It's probably for the best that once Dick reaches the hallway, the child has mysteriously disappeared. Also, much to the delight and amusement of his neighbors, and me, Naked Dick has locked himself out of his apartment. Hooray! 
Across town, Cyborg is feeling kinda glum and suffering from a sort of generalized ennui. He is snapped out of his malaise by the sound of distant gunfire. He busts into the brownstone from which the shots emanated and finds four thugs who have apparently just shot an old man. Shitty. Vic beats up three of the goons, but as he is about to give chase to the fourth, he is distracted by the sudden appearance of a creepy little blonde girl in an old-timey dress who is skipping rope and singing a little song about Victor and his not-so-secret identity. Huh. Vic tries to chase her down, but she disappears. Soon afterwards, the police arrive. The cops thank Victor for his help and tell him how much they like the Teen Titans, which is a refreshing change of pace. He heads downtown with them and fills out a report, then has a chat with the only responsible adult in the DC Universe, Captain Hall. Hall informs Cyborg that the guy who got killed was named Carmen Rossetti, and that he had been about to testify about some murders he had had a role in about 50 years ago. Hall was sure that Rossetti's testimony would have dealt a serious blow to the Mafia, so he's pretty bummed out about the whole Rossetti getting killed thing. I guess Hall must have one of those cork boards with all the evidence connected by strands of yarn set up just off-panel, because Cyborg somehow sees that Rossetti's old address is the same apartment that Dick moved into about six months ago. Hmm. He calls around, and after getting Coriander's number from Jericho, he finally gets a hold of Dick at her apartment. They're about to head out to a play. Dick is like, What? A murder? Fine, I'll solve it tomorrow, but me and Starfire are seeing O'Calcutta tonight, and that's more important than murder. Yeah, we've seen it seven times, but the ad-libbing about nudity at the end is a little bit different every performance, and besides, I need to inoculate myself against boner jokes if we're going to hang out with Beast Boy later. Man, do I wish I'd never told him my real name is Dick. Okay, bye! Meanwhile, just outside Birmingham, Alabama, Two men are helping an injured woman walk through a driving rainstorm. The woman says that they should just turn around, but the men insist that they are taking her to a lady who has special powers that will heal her leg. The injured woman is of the opinion that they're wasting their time because the lady in question never wants to help anybody, but the guys insist that they will use force if necessary. I'm guessing that's not going to end well. The next day, the Titans start poking around Nightwing's apartment, looking for clues. The murder Rossetti was to have informed on would have taken place about half a century ago, but fortunately, it must be a rent-controlled building because some of the tenants still live there. A former ballerina named Sofia Malenkov, who was a young woman at the time of the alleged crimes, agrees to answer some questions and welcomes the Titans into her home. Apparently, she read about the Titans in a recent issue of People magazine and is a fan. What do you want to bet that that article ended up including at least one secret identity that the gang let slip up? Like, Starfire accidentally put on her sunglasses during the interview, or Wonder Girl wore her Hi, It's Me, Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, Windbreaker, you know, something like that. Sophia fills the gang in on the alleged murder victims. They were a charming couple named Martin and Martha Cannon, who had a young daughter named Cynthia. Martin did some accounting for the couple who lived across the hall, and would sometimes drop off Cynthia for Sophia to watch while he was working. The day they went missing, though, they were in a rush and just stopped by quickly to say hello before dropping off some paperwork for Martin's employer. Jericho points out a picture that is hanging on the wall of a young Sophia posing next to a little girl. Sophia confirms that the girl in the picture is Cynthia, 
which freaks Nightwing and Cyborg out on account of she looks exactly like the creepy little blonde girl who said rhymes at them and then disappeared. Mrs. Malenkoff is pretty freaked out by how freaked out Victor and Dick are, but Jericho calms her down by dancing around the room with her for a while. It's sweet. Hey, remember that whole previously in the new Teen Titans segment that was about Zack Wingman? Let's check in on him for a second. Zack Wingman is cruising around the skies above a tropical island which he finds himself strangely drawn to. He sees a lone figure standing on the shore and swoops down to check it out. It's Mother Mayhem, the second-in-command of the murderous cult, the Church of Blood. Uh-oh. Mother Mayhem is like, Hey, buddy, guess what? You're an angel. Your name's Azriel, and the Church of Blood thinks you're super important and special. Do you want to come work for us and do miracles and stuff? Zack is like, Okie dokie, you had me at your name is. Say, your group isn't going to beat me up for no reason and then chase me around a city, are you? Mother Mayhem is like, no. Zack is like, wow, this is easily the nicest organization I've ever encountered. Back in New York, the gang is hanging out in Dick's apartment and debriefing after their meeting with the retired ballerina. Beast Boy turns into a snake and hits on Cole. So, she zaps crystals into his mouth until he nearly chokes to death. Hooray! Victor asks, What do you think is up with that little kid we keep seeing who looks like that girl from the picture? Dick responds, I don't know, but one thing's for sure, she's definitely not a ghost, because nothing supernatural has ever happened in the DC Universe. Then they hear a little girl singing a creepy rhyme out in the hallway. It's the same kid as before. Starfire chases her, but the kid disappears. Gee, if I didn't know better, I'd almost think she was a ghost or something. But of course, that would be impossible. The gang heads down to the basement and questions the building's custodian. His name is Abraham Carver, and he's been working there in roughly the same position for the last 60 years or so. On the day the cannons disappeared, he heard some shouting and saw little Cynthia run by. But then he got bonked on the noodle and missed the rest of what happened. When he woke up, it was too late to do anything but clean up all the blood. The police never found any bodies, but ever since, everyone who lives in the apartment has complained about ghosts and moved out after six months. Some kid named Grayson's been renting the place lately, and Abe expects that he'll be moving out any day now. The Titans take a break to get some dinner, then get back to work. It turns out that in addition to his criminal connections... Carmen Rossetti also had a background in vaudeville. Since Cyborg's rad globetrotting grandparents, Tucker and Maude, used to be in showbiz, he arranges for the gang to sit down with them and ask if they knew Rossetti. Apparently, they did. Carmen was a shitty singer back in the 30s and was known to have mob ties even back then. He stopped performing back in 33. This information doesn't seem particularly useful, but it's always nice to see Tucker and Maudie, so I'm okay with it. Dick does some checking around and finds Rossetti's most recent address. I guess the place he was shot was just where the cops had him in protective custody while they were waiting for him to testify. Great job, cops! The team checks out Rossetti's old house and finds a scrap of paper with a phone number on it. The number leads them to an address in rural New Jersey that belongs to a congressman named Henry Withers. A politician with crimes to criminal activity? Unprecedented! The Titans head out to New Jersey to investigate. When they arrive, Congressman Withers is eager to unburden himself. By 
which I mean, he wants to talk about the murders, not that he has to poop. I mean, it's possible that he has to do both, but the dump of the exposition variety is the only one we can confirm for sure. Henry Withers stares off into the middle distance and divulges the following. Back in the 30s, Henry was married to a lady that was really pretty. He knew she was at least kind of evil, but he figured it was just a little bit. He figured wrong. One day, one of his wife's underlings, Carmen Rossetti, burst into their apartment to inform Mrs. Withers that the cops were busting up her drug ring. Up until then, Hank had thought that bootlegging liquor during Prohibition was the extent of her criminal enterprise, but when confronted, she proudly told him that she was also into drug dealing, prostitution, and murder. It was money from these crimes that had funded his early career as a politician. Hank wasn't too stoked about that, but, like I said, she was real pretty, so he didn't say shit. Then, a few days later, the accountant for her legitimate businesses, Martin Cannon, stopped by the apartment with his family to drop off some paperwork. Unfortunately, Rossetti had left a bunch of crime stuff lying around the desk. Martin saw it and threatened to go to the police, so Mrs. Withers got out a gun and shot both Martin and his wife. The little girl ran away, so she chased her down, clubbed the custodian on the back of the head before he could see anything, and then shot the little girl. Jeez. Henry fled the apartment and filed for divorce the next day. He met his current wife Irma soon after, and they've been together ever since. He never told anybody about what he saw that day. At the urging of our heroes and his wife Irma, Withers agrees to give the Titans his ex-wife's name and testify against her if necessary. As it happens, the congressman's ex-wife is none other than... Donna Omicidio, the evil old lady crime boss from the Vigilante storyline a couple years ago. The Titans fly to Connecticut, Kool-Aid man their way through the innocuously named Mafiosa's wall, and arrest her. Once in custody, Donna Omicidio agrees to turn state's evidence and testify against some of her fellow scumbags in exchange for immunity. She also divulges that the bodies of Martin and Martha Cannon are hidden behind a wall in Dick's apartment. Cyborg and Wonder Girl tear the wall open and find a pair of gross old skeletons. As soon as these denuded corpses are exposed, the creepy little blonde kid runs into the apartment. You're not going to believe this, but it turns out she's the ghost of Cynthia Cannon. What? The ghosts of her parents rise out of their skeletons, hug their daughter, and happily fade into non-existence, leaving only their decomposed carcasses behind. Aww. So there's pretty much no way Dick's ever getting his security deposit back. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am not very well-rested, but otherwise well. Glad to hear it. Uh, I am pretty well-rested. I love sleep. Sleep loves me. Oh, that's a good team. It is. I'm not as good at it as I used to be. Yeah, me neither. Man, I used to be. I was like a champion. Yeah, I would have given you a run for my money. I would have given you a run for your money. No, I like the first one. Yeah, all right. Wait. <laughs> I'll take your money. No. If you... not a, Especially not if it involves me running. I hate that phrase now. <laughs> anyway, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah. Okay, Corey, what do you think of this comic book? I thought it was a hoot. It was really nice. It was refreshing to get a self-contained issue. More or less. There are a couple of loose story threads that are 
establishing themselves, but mostly it's a one-and-done story arc and a really nicely done one at that. I'm often not a fan of many things that are fusions of genres or foods or other things like that. Sometimes it works great. Korean tacos. Sure. Or I don't know how many I was thinking about with this story in terms of genre, but I got like a ghost story. Sure. Superhero story. Mm -hmm. Hard-boiled detective story. Elements. Yeah. And kind of film noir. Yeah. And it all worked really well together. I think I have said before, I think Marv Wolfman is at his best in these kind of one-and-done stories, and especially works well with detective stories. Mm -hmm. And there were parts of this issue that did kind of remind me of the Who is Donna Troy issue. Enough that I like kept looking at the cover and then looking back at the other cover to be like, are they similar? And they're not really. Mm -mm. But... Yeah, it's a neat and tidy, well-told tale of terror. Yeah. It's nice to see the world's greatest dick get to shine a little bit. Yeah. Although... Or is he second? Is Batman the greatest detective? I, I think Batman is the world's greatest detective. Oh. Robin or Nightwing is probably... Second greatest? Probably. Maybe third. I I'm... mean, in this universe. Yeah, I'm also you never... no Columbo's... No Poirot's. Yeah, I feel like maybe Sherlock Holmes does exist in this universe. You also got your elongated mans. He's a pretty good detective. You got your The Questions. You know, there's a lot of pretty good detectives in the DCU. I guess I have to not... I have to remove his world's greatest dick moniker. Hmm. He hasn't earned it. Not in that regard. He does still do a thing that is used in... This comic specifically, I know it gets used across comic books, where there is a reticence to accept any element of the supernatural, despite overwhelming evidence and history of dealing with the supernatural, that I always find a little bit off-putting. But overall, good detectiving, everybody. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the cover. What did you think of the cover of this issue? Interesting. So... A uh, ton of detail. Stylistically, I felt a little different than the art on the interior. It is, and I think thematically a little bit different, too. There are definitely hints at the fact that it is a ghost story. I mean, there's a pretty big hint in the fact that it says ghost story in big letters on the front. Creepy letters. But there's also like a Victorian-era roll-top desk and an old revolver. The thing that threw me a little bit was I very much got the impression from looking at this that it was going to be set more Victorian era, mm -hmm. and also that there would be more of a romantic element to the story between Dick and Coriander, because there is a picture frame on the desk that is a picture of them dressed in Victorian era fashion, holding a rose. Looks like it might be a wedding picture. Yeah. It just seemed a little bit incongruous to have that there where that isn't reflected inside the story at all. But it's a very pretty cover. Yeah, it's great. I had the same confusion. I was like, oh man, are they going to tie the knot or what's going to happen? I think there's maybe just a tendency to conflate ghost stories with the Victorian era. Like I was thinking when like the little girl ghost shows up and is like skipping around and stuff, I was like, man, if I have kids... I'm maybe going to dress him up in old-timey clothes and just send him out in the neighborhood to freak people out. 
Don't do that. It would be pretty funny. Scary kid ghosts are the worst. I know, especially when they sing rhymes like this one does. That is awful. The yeah. worst is the... Did you see... How old were you when you saw The Shining? Have we talked about this? I was too young when I saw The Shining. I do remember the creepy twin ghosts in that. Ugh. But that is all overshowered by the pig bear man that was going down on that guy in one like one second clip when Shelley Duvall is running through the hotel. That one, like, just brief image of, like, man in a pig bear furry suit <laughs> was just like, what the fuck is going, what? It, it just, it terrified me, and it still does to this day whenever I think of it. Did Kubrick invent, invent furries? No. They were They've before. always been there. Cover aside, what did you think of the rest of the art in this issue? We have a different penciler than we have. What'd you think? Um, Good. Yeah, I keep waiting for there to be a letdown. Um, I do miss Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and we're not going to see him for a while if we do see him again, which is a shame because that was rad. This is a one-off for Stan Watch, and then I think after that for a little while, Eduardo Beretta, who has been doing some of the covers, is going to take over the art. I think Stan Watch is a really good choice for this issue. He's worked a lot in... Comics that have dealt with elements of the supernatural, um, and it really works well here. Uh, he's probably best known for working on Sandman, and this came up in the last New Teen Titans issue. He's the guy who drew the psychedelic yam issue of Swamp Thing. No shit. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I think did a great job with that, and I think does a great job with this issue. There is also a nice touch in here with the flashback scenes where they are colored really well. It's the, the flashback scenes are done in kind of a sepia tone, mm-hmm. which is way more subtle than I'm used to seeing in a book like this. And I think you can get that where you have the improved paper quality. The colors aren't all in general just washed out a little bit. It works really, really well. And Adrian Wright just did a really nice job, just nailed the color scheme. Yeah, and I, I was pleased too with the new pencils to see still some creativity in the in the way that the panels were constructed yeah there's one in particular that i definitely want to talk about later later one of the flashback scenes is that the one you were thinking of Mm -hmm. yeah we see that the uh church of blood has made their play for our buddy zach wingman Mm -hmm. seems like a pretty easy recruiting pitch hey did you know that you're an angel me (laughs) i think more than that it was like hey did you know that you can have a name? And he's I can like, have a name? I can have a yeah. name? <laughs> he was absolutely like, just like, all right, so we're going to call you by a name, you get a job, and we won't just beat you up for no reason. He's like, whoa, sign me up. I never knew Earth could be a paradise like this. Yeah, it seemed a little too easy. Well, I think the Titans kind of set him up for that, though. That's true. They really the second he shows up, they're like, destroy him. Yeah, destroy no him. And then he hangs out with them for, like, the course of several adventures. And they never even try to give him a nickname or call him anything. Yeah, so the first time he's treated with any kindness, he has made easy pickings for this evil cult. Mm. Bad job, Titans. Yeah, they kind of set him up, like you said. Yeah. I also looked into it a little bit because, as I said, the ch- lady from the Church of Blood... Probably Mother Mayhem, probably a Mother Mayhem, I would guess, tells him that his name is Azrael. 
And that is the first time that we are reading this in the Teen Titans, except for, I think I mentioned this last issue, in the letters column, there was somebody who referred to him as Azrael in that. And I was a little bit puzzled by that and wondering where else he had appeared. I think where they got that from was the issue of who's who in the DCU mm. that he appears in was printed in April. And he is listed as Azrael in that. And the last issue came out in, I think, August of 85. And so there was just like a, a timing issue where they hadn't revealed in the story yet what his name was, but mm. people who were reading Who's Who in the DCU were able to piece that together. Those were, if I recall, released in alphabetical kind of chunks. Right. right? So, okay, so they had gotten issue A through whatever. They um, had Well, they had gotten issue A through A, and then he was actually in the second one, which was Auto Man through Blackhawks. Different Auto Man than the one we watched the TV show for. Gosh, I wonder if he ever had a comic book. Probably like a promotional one, I would imagine. Probably as bad as the show. I, at least. <laughs> we also saw hints at a future storyline that are dropped where there's really not enough shown for us to tell what's going to be going on with it. It's other the than Alabama scene. Yeah, it takes place in Alabama and involves a woman who the locals believe is a witch and can heal people, but she declines to do so and just wants to be left alone. And that's really all we know about it other than the fact that I am probably going to be made very uncomfortable by Marv Wolfman's spelling out rural black dialects. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a great track record for accents and ethnicity and no, those sort of things. I'm anticipating very high mebby counts in the future. Mm. This issue, incidentally, has a mebby count of four. Uh, Cyborg drops a couple of them early, and then... Gar and Cyborg each drop a Mebby, I believe, on the same page. They uh, they really bring out the worst in one another. Yeah, I thought their kind of buddy cop, not buddy cop, but their buddy relationship was cute. But now, I don't know, I'm thinking that Borgie needs to exhibit more tough love or some guidance to help Gar just fucking snap out of it and yeah, stop the, being a snake that tries to make girls kiss him. Uh, the yeah, the Not gentle the first time. No, the gentle the gentle teasing approach that Cyborg has taken it's to his working. mentoring is not working. It is yeah, you can't use a scalpel. You're going to need a sledgehammer on this one. <laughs> I did very much appreciate Cole's reaction to Beast Boy turning into a snake and climbing up her leg and being like, "Hey, let's make out." Uh, which she was like, oh, Beast Boy, you're so funny, and then fills his mouth with crystals for him to choke on. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh, you, this is fun banter, and, like, really could have killed him, and then you see him turn back to human, and it looks like she's bashing him over the head with a big hunk of crystal, and I was like, I like this Cole. Yep. I think she's good. Yep. That's how you need to train your Beast Boy. That kind of negative reinforcement, I think, will pay off, off in a way that Cyborg's teasing has not. Yep. He just needs a rolled-up newspaper, smack him on the nose, mm -hmm. firmly. A crystallized rolled-up newspaper yep. made of a rigid silicon. Say no. Mm -hmm. And then try to choke him to death. Yeah. It's the only way he'll learn. Well, maybe Borgie will take a page from Cole's book. 
Yeah, I, I hope so. Use the, her, his, like, uh, white noise sonic blaster on him next time he tries some shit. What's that, Beast Boy? I see, I see your lips moving, but I don't hear anything. <laughs> also, your eardrums are bleeding. You okay, buddy? <laughs> there is a really fun opening sequence in this where Dick is at home in his apartment. <laughs> and he's just getting out of the shower. And then the creepy little girl ghost starts skipping rope in his, like, living room and saying her little rhyme about, D, your name is Dickie, your daddy's name is Bruce, and you're really known as Nightwing. And he's like, oh, shit. And he chases after her into the hallway where he's still wearing just his towel, and then he gets locked out of the apartment when she disappears as a ghost. So that whole thing is really funny, but I also like to imagine what his explanation was when his neighbors, because we see all of his neighbors gather around and have various reactions to his uh, unfortunate predicament. My favorite being a guy who just looks at him and is like, <laughs> gestures to his wife and is like, get a hold of this guy. I was going to ask you what your favorite was because that was, that was also... I liked that one a lot. I also liked the ballerina who we meet later, the elderly ballerina woman who is just like, ooh, mm-hmm. very nice. Yeah, there's a couple appreciative stares at his physique but then there's also one lady who just looks horrified yeah well i think hers is maybe the proper reaction in the context of i'm sure when he tries to explain to them he's like no 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 you don't understand yeah i'm sorry that i ended up naked in the hallway but i was just naked chasing a little girl that i saw oh bad yeah that's not a good look dick no i just didn't want her to tell on me because (laughs) she knows secrets about me and so I couldn't let her get away. Yeah, just keeps digging, digging himself digging into the himself hole. Deeper. Yeah, yeah. Did your old apartment that had the hallway like that? Did that didn't have like uh, automatically locking doors, right? You had to physically lock. Them? Yeah, no, I would lock myself out of the main entrance to the apartment building. But once I got inside, I could get back oh, into okay. my house. Okay. Yeah, I went through a period. We were talking about it a couple of days ago, where I would routinely lock myself out of the apartment and got pretty good at breaking into my apartments. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, very lucky that I didn't get shot or anything. Yeah. So, good for me. Good for you. I don't know what made me think of that. I was just like, oh, I wonder if that ever happened to Hub. Not the I feel. Yeah, no, I feel like I may have gotten locked out of a hotel room at some point, like in a towel or something, but I might just be thinking of every sitcom ever. Yeah, serves you right for punching your brother in the back in the hotel for no reason. (laughs) Corey, we've been over that. I thought it would be funny. It was a little bit funny. And you did throw me in a drawer one time. I told you that was going to happen. That's fair. So one of the things that came up in this issue is that Donna at one point references the fact that it feels like they are in a noir detective novel. And specifically, she references the work of Ross MacDonald, who I had to look up. I wasn't familiar with him. Were you? Um, No, I looked him up also. It turns out I've seen some adaptations of his work, but I didn't know the name off the top of my head. It struck me as a little bit odd when I did look up when he was active as a writer and most popular as a writer, that Donna would be making that reference. It seems like the sort of thing that Beast Boy would generally bring Mm -hmm. up. And it honestly makes me wonder if 
what I had been ascribing to Wolfman as developing the character of Beast Boy and having it be that, oh, he likes film noirs and old movies and stuff, which would make sense given his backstory. If that is in fact just coincidental and it's just Wolfman being like, I like these things, so my characters say them. Uh. And I don't know, I think that's unfortunate if that's the case, because I, like I said, it does make sense to have Beast Boy, given his background and that his mom was an actor in older movies, that he would have developed, developed an affinity for them, especially because he's an aspiring actor and stuff. But just having any character make references to things from like 30, 40 years ago that Marv Wolfman grew up with, I think is a choice that works a lot less well. Marty and Tucker had some fun vaudeville talk. That's true, they sure did. I like them so much. They are fun. I'm happy whenever they show up. I am impressed by both of their ability to recall dates and details from long ago. Yeah. I can remember very little of the previous week, often. I'm much better at remembering details from long ago than I am from the previous week, so maybe there's something like that going on with them. Mm -hmm. Although, the events throughout this issue were kind of a mindfuck for me in terms of like, okay, so this story came out in the mid-80s and was related to events from 50 years ago and then started me down the line of, which is always dangerous for me, like, so if that came out today, it would be a story that was set in 1970. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's like the vaudeville and prohibition days when I was... A kid, they seemed like that was the same as basically medieval times. Oh, sure. And I mean, you know, the 70s is still, most of them were before I was born, but it sure doesn't seem like olden times in the same way as Al Capone does. Mm -mm. Yeah, it is a, that is a sticky wicket. Yeah, people always say in times a flat circle. They, no, it isn't. They are? Oh, yeah, everybody. Just ask them. A They're like, hey, what's time? Circle? It's a flat circle. I'm like, no, it's not. You're thinking of circles. Circle's a flat circle. If a circle wasn't flat, it'd be a sphere. So, not a continuum, but a, just something more linear? Honestly, it is a phrase I've heard many times, and I have never had the slightest clue what it's supposed to mean. Isn't that a, from a song? Time, no, time it's slipping a, into the time future. Time is a wheel that keeps on turning? No, that's the wheel in the sky that keeps turning. I mean, maybe the wheel in the sky is time. Into the future. Steve Miller band. There. Yeah. Um, time. Time, time, look what's become of me. Time has come today. Oh, that's a good song. Yeah. Mm, if I could put time in a bottle, don't do it. You can't put a circle in a bottle. Yeah, come on, Jim Croce. Get with the program. We're going to need a large mouth bottle for that. And then what's the point? What are you going to do with that bottle? I think he might say what he's going to do with the bottle later on in the song, but I only know the chorus. Come on, Jim Croce, put more information in your chorus. Tough, but fair. Might be in the chorus, too. Jim Croce, put more information in your song title. All right, let's get to the thing that is really the only thing that I actually want to talk about in this comic book. Donna Omasidio. She's back, hey. I know we talked about it before, but that is the most ridiculous name for a character ever, and I love it so much. 
Yeah, well, Don Homicide. Yeah, Lady Homicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it was good to get a... I don't think we had the backstory from her before, did we? Uh, n- no, just she had showed up and just been kind of like a mafia Don, mm-hmm. or Donna, mm-hmm. as it were. That was a badass um, backstory. Yeah. She's going to have her puppet An uh, awful murder person. Yeah. Husband and... Her... Wait, he was a her dum-dum. J- oh, boy. And she's a dum-dum, too, I gotta say. for Because it's established that she didn't love him. She was just setting him up as, like, a puppet mm-hmm. for her murder empire and such. And wants, you know, to have some government protection. Which is reasonable. But she murders a bunch of people right in front of him. And then they just get a divorce. And he goes off and, like, she funded his campaign. She gets nothing out of this. And she just lets him go? Seems like he should have been murdered. Yeah, that story does not check out. Maybe he really, like, he's glossed over the fact that he has been in her pocket for his entire career. And he just doesn't want to say that in front of his new wife. Yeah, he probably, she figured, you know, he's not going to flip on me because then that'll look bad on him. Yeah, and she literally knows where the bodies are buried. Yeah, and so... So she's got him, like, as protection, just like, all right, you can have your divorce, but... I got this ace in the hole, and next time you're in a big vote comes up yeah some appropriations i'm gonna take them that's how yeah works, right? legalize murder next time it comes up on the ballot i was thinking more like those uh no-show jobs oh but jobs you don't have to show up for i was from watching the sopranos that was the thing oh uh, they made money where they like would threaten the construction person and they'd make jobs on the construction site that they just like and they paid somebody to not do anything yeah oh that sounds like a my ideal job. So I don't know how that's related to Congress, but... I'd say that getting paid to not do shit is related pretty directly to Congress. Zing! So, do you think her legal name is Donna Amasidio, or do you think that she changed her name to that? Because either one is berserk. I don't think she changed her name to that. I think that was her given You name. think that her birth name is Lady Boss Homicide? I guess that makes more sense than her changing her name to that, because I guess that the alternative would be that she was like, all right, I need a name that'll keep the cops off my back. Something that they would never suspect of doing nefarious deeds. How about Lady Homicide? Mm, it's good, but maybe we could also make it foreign. Mm-hmm. I think that would really help me slide under the radar. Yeah. No, no, no. That's a given name. I also just like to picture a scenario where she's just, like, sitting around with the other crime bosses that are part of her gang. And just being like, All right, you're wondering why I've all called you here today. Jimmy McBreaking and Entering. Sal Malfradio. Eddie Von Prostitution. (laughs) Steen. And and our newest member, Bobby Identity Thefto. Oh, uh, Bob. Oh, Bobby Thefto. <laughs> uh, excuse me, uh, Miss uh, Amasidio. There's a slight pronunciation error. Uh, that's not actually how you say my name. Oh, I- I'm so sorry, Bobby. Wh- what is it? Uh, it's pronounced Donna Amasidio. Oh, what a coincidence. That's my... Bobby! Hey, I had to try. <laughs> oh. Uh, they-, they love that Bobby identity thefto. I don't think she would actually let him get away with that. No, he'd, he'd probably be he'd get murdered. Shot. Yeah. Yeah. 
she is pretty murder happy, oh, including just like yeah, puppy. just straight up chasing down and murdering a little girl. Oof. I still think she looks like Carl Lagerfeld <laughs> a little bit, minus the glove. Kind of that whitish gray hair that's up in a yeah. I'm like still seeing her as more of a uh, Gary Oldman from the beginning of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. You're not seeing that? I don't like it. Well, you can like it or not, but it's there, man. It maybe will come up in the timestamps, but this seems to be one of the issues where the personal computing technology is really kind of coming into the fore in a way that was slightly more related to reality than the computering of the uh, the past and Titan Tower. I think one of my favorite parts was the nods to how Jericho communicates by telephone. That he has his, like... it's. I think it's a Texas Instruments speaking spell. It seems like a pretty good one. It looked very much like what I remember a speaking spell to look like. I mix up speaking spell with those things that you pull the cord on and it spins around and then says, The cow says moo. What are those called? Oh, I don't know. I know what you're talking about. I'm not sure what those are called. No, they're not speaking spells, though. Oh, I, I, might, I might have the name wrong. No, I mean, that I'm... would make sense, because you would need to spell things out, and I don't think you can spell things out by pulling a no, cord. No, that's just like an animal noise toy. I think that's maybe that's I like a speak it. and say? Oh, because the machine is speaking the animal sound? Yeah, and then once it does, you're like, say, that's pretty good. <laughs> that is what a cow says. I like chickens. <laughs> sure. How about that? Say... Nice job. Well, I don't like geese. <laughs> Boo. So, yeah, you think that was like a speaking spell that he was It's kind of how I remember him looking. I like that it was described as having chiclet-like keys, which mm-hmm. also, uh, is that still a thing? Chiclets? You remember those, that gum? Yeah, I, I remember them. I've never chewed gum. Oh, that's right. You're anti-gum. Yeah. Firmly. I'm the never, one, ever, ever? Reg- yeah, I've never even tried gum once. I just, I never liked the smell of it, and then, like... All of a sudden, I was 30, and I'd never chewed gum, and I was like, I'm not going to start now. Yeah. So, you know, time's a flat circle. (laughs) Ask your excuse for everything. (laughs) It is now. Yeah, but no, I appreciated that, and also I think you were probably referring to Dick's use of the phone modem. I love his disclaimer. It's not going to hurt the phone. I can understand him having to make that disclaimer, though, especially to older people like Maudie and Tucker. Who grew up in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But it, it is weird to see that. And also, does speak to his wealth and privilege that he has a personal modem that he can carry around with him and help him connect to his bat computer? Do you yeah. think he still has access to the bat computer? It's like a like a personal laptop bat computer. Oh, it's not a lap. He doesn't have a laptop, does he? It was. Wasn't he it didn't mention something that sits on his lap. Did he invent the laptop just then? Oh, Dick Grayson. Wow. Congratulations. Nice work. That was, he was too far ahead of his time. He really was. Man. Joe's speaking spell was also a laptop. Wow. But more of a tablet. Yeah. More of a TI-81. Yeah. It's more of a graphing calculator. Really big one. Yeah. And he could use it to spell out the word boobs. Oh, sure. Like, with any calculator. Mm-hmm. That's what calculators are for. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you ready to get into the minutia? Yep. 
Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, yes. sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were worthy of note? Sure. Perennial favorites, Maud and Tucker, are back. I don't really know that they changed their outfit too much, but um, Tucker was looking pretty sharp. He's got some 70s-looking stripes on his shirt. Oh, yeah, no, he's got a nice striped shirt. Purple pants. Yeah, it's a good look. Yeah. Maudie's wearing a green dress. Mm-hmm. With a leopard print headscarf. Mm-hmm. She's wearing it at the beginning, but I think she takes it off during the discussion. Because at the end, when... Uh, Cyborg kisses her goodbye. Mm-hmm. She's not wearing it. But yeah, no, I think they're dressed very nicely. Uh, I would like to take a closer look at Dick and Donna's going to the theater clothes. Ah, that was my other choice. What a sharp couple. Yes, what kind of theater do you think they're going to? Rocky Horror Picture Show? Nope, it's too early because they left at 8. Mm, that's true. They look very disco-y, kind of. They look very disco-y, and they're both wearing very low-cut tops mm-hmm. like dick is wearing what looks like a jacket that it doesn't look like he's wearing a shirt under that's unbuttoned to like mid chest big lapels big lapels but also buttons like maybe he's wearing like a leisure suit top but no shirt under it i think that shirt is really really shiny it's like sateen mm, it certainly could be it would match uh, i believe uh starfire is wearing a leather mini skirt with a uh, fairly low-cut blouse as well, and some high heels. And they are going to the theater, and man, we joked about the Titans being all theater kids. In the past few issues, there has been a lot of talk of various cast members just going to the theater. They are always going to the theater. I think last time it was... Um, it was uh, Sarah and Gary Sarah and, were going to yeah. the theater, but when Vic was dropping off the flowers, he was singing a song from Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Yes. <clears throat> That's how that sings, That is exactly right? how it goes. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank You're you. You're gunning for me as America's songbird. Like a bird. Mm-hmm. A songbird. Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? Those are the two I had. Those are the two main ones. There's some uh, nice old-timey clothes, and the little girl is described as wearing a dress from 50 years ago, but maybe, I don't know, little kid fashion all looks the same to me. Never goes out of style. No. I mean, unless it's like a specific pop cultural reference. Like uh, underoos? Yeah, well, like or she's not wearing like a Howdy Doody t-shirt or something. Or moon boots. Yeah. That would have been appropriate for this time. I suppose it would have. She wasn't wearing that. So nope. maybe that was why Dick's first clue that he should have clued in on. She's like, that little girl wasn't wearing moon boots. She clearly is a ghost from 50 years ago. Or ruse. Sure, she could have been wearing ruse. More appropriate for the time of year. It's yeah. not set in the winter. That's true, but we don't, when did the murders take place, though? We see the ghost shows up every six months or so, so could have been a winter murder. You gotta stop thinking so critically about these things, man, or you're gonna drive yourself bonkers. Too late. So, in this issue, who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which titan was acting the most dramatically? Oh, shit. It has to be a titan, doesn't it? Doesn't it doesn't have to be a titan. Who did you have? Okay. I had a titan as a backup, but that was not the most dramatic person in this story. No. Who was? Who did you feel was the most dramatic person in the story? I had Congressman Withers by a mile. 
was it mostly for the scene in which he is told that Donna Omicidio has funded his campaign with ill-gotten gains? Yep, it was that, and then 30 years in the future, him recounting that and, like, literally, like, pulling his hair <laughs> from the front with, with remorse? I don't know. Probably remorse. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was an accessory to murder. <laughs> but that panel is, the when the first one is, like, so it was only recently, like, that people started saying what without the T and a, lo- a lot of A's, like, what? I don't know, man. But that, he was totally doing that. That Ben Grimm panel that we cite often, that was from like f- close to 50 years ago now. Mm. The, what happened? That's true. That's true. But I guess like without following it up with the hopping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was rarer. But no, he was just, let's read his quote about it too. Because he just does come across as a big naive dummy. He means well, but not so well that he's not just going to let a bunch of murders slide. <laughs> yeah, that look on his face is like, what? <laughs> she is saying, if you insist, the money I used to fund your campaign comes from more than liquor. Your new career was paid for by drugs, prostitution, and yes, even murder. And he's like, oh, oh no. Liquor, hell, everyone, including the mayor, drinks it. I don't like drugs. I, I, my own problem with that scene too. I was like, it is a drug, you fool. Hmm. Good point. Thank you. So I did consider him as my choice, but I decided to go with Dick for my president of the drama club. And it was kind of a subtle move. There wasn't the same type of like Zach Wingman style, like teeth gnashing and hair rending that we generally see. But there was a specific move where when they all Kool-Aid man their way into Donna Omicidio's apartment, he is just the one, like, standing dramatically in the middle of the scene. And that must have taken some doing on his part. Because he is not somebody who can blast a hole through the wall. That was clearly done by Cyborg or Starfire or Donna. And so that means that they busted their way through the door. And then he's like, no, 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 everybody out of the way. Everybody out of the way. I'm going to stand in the middle. I'm the leader so that I can make this little speech. Or probably beforehand, actually, he's like outside. He's like, okay, team, together. Now, okay, you guys bust through and then move to the side real quick. And then I'm going to step through, okay? Okay, yeah. guys? Yeah, because I'm, I'm going to say, it's been a long hunt, but you're finally about to pay for your crimes. Yeah. you could. T- <laughs> he's like pumped. <laughs> So that was why he was my choice for president of the drama club. Just for, you know, making sure that he is well-framed and center stage when they make their dramatic mm-hmm. entrance through the side of the wall that he really clearly had nothing to do with. I think he did some push-ups and stuff first. So, like, when he came in... He right, so like, they'll oh. assume that he maybe punched the wall. Oh, down. yeah. Yeah. Tough guy. Mm-hmm. That's a good choice. I, I had a backup, too, that was a Titan. What was your backup? And that was Joe, because... Granted, he's mute, which makes him have to express himself with more physicality than the rest of the yes. team. But the whole scene in which he dances with the elderly lady... I thought that was really sweet. It was really sweet, but it's like he does a little sign, like, would you like to dance? He's being very, almost, like, coy. It's pretty cute, and he does, a like, a very formal bow, and then there's this whole dancing scene, and I don't know, it seemed like he, he just put a lot of thought into He that. He did. Well, let's segue that into who was 
your Aqualad, the best Teen Titan, and who was your Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan. I don't know that he's necessarily my choice, but I think for that scene, a strong case could be made for Joey. Mm. He can see that the idea of ghosts and the fact that she had been really near a murder was very upsetting to Sophia. And I really liked that he decided to step in and calm her down and put her at ease. And he knew that she was a ballerina and that he took the time to, uh, to dance with her and put her at ease and make sure that she had a nice time in this murder questioning. I thought it was a really nice move on mm-hmm. his part. Sure. I think a pretty strong case can also be made for Cyborg. I really liked the inner monologue that he had, just his thought process in the speech as he is like, I'm just stressed out and I want something to happen. But then he hears gunshots and he's like kind of chiding himself internally for being as excited as he is about rushing into that action. He's like, this is the only time that I feel alive, but this isn't a game to these people. They have real lives and lives are at stake. What does it say about me that this is my reaction to it? Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really well done and thoughtful inner dialogue. But my choice is Cole because of the way she smacked down Beast Boy and filled his mouth with crystals when he tried to kiss her. <laughs> Very satisfying. Yes. Who was your choice for Best Teen Titan? Yeah, I also had Borgi as, uh, as my backup. I felt like there were several team members that without their contributions, the mystery would not have been solved. And mm-hmm. his was definitely an important one where he leveraged his uh, grandparents' knowledge of the past to basically uncover a clue that led them towards the solving of the crime. Right. And solving past homicides is a perhaps often lesser-known benefit to rent control, as we see in this yeah. issue. Yeah. The fact that the same people have been living in this apartment since the 30s, yeah, you get to, you get to solve some cold cases uh, if you get rent control. So let's have some nice rent reform going on, people. All right. However, my first choice was Dick, because I felt, despite his theatrics and doing the push-ups and not actually bashing in the wall, he really did show some good leadership here, and it wasn't the kind of forced leadership that we often tried him for. Yeah. And he was willing to bend the rules of the law by hacking into the social security system to find the congressman that um, basically broke the whole case wide open. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I still, I feel like they would have solved this case a lot quicker if he hadn't been hung up on the idea of, well, it's almost like that little girl was a ghost, but that can't be the case because there's no such thing as ghosts. That's kind of his thing, though, right? Like, I know, but I... him in the past for Well, that. Beast Boy's whole thing is being a creepy little shit, but, uh, but you don't let him off the hook because that's his thing. This is Dick's thing, is being skeptical about the supernatural, despite having, you know, friends that are ghosts, despite solving ghost-related crimes all the fucking time, despite convincing an old man to shoot his infant grandson in the face because it was a demon. That was a long time ago, but okay, point made. Yeah, no, I think of this stuff... It was stuff... a long time ago for us. For him, that was like three years ago, tops. Hey, time is a flat circle. God damn it! Um, <laughs> yeah, I think of the how odd it is that so many things are considered outside of the realm of possibility when they are clearly happening all the time. And an example of that, in this one too, is when they all go to the apartment of, of the former ballerina, mm-hmm. who's an old lady. The only thing she says to Starfire is to kind of like 
give her a little bit of a hard time about the outfit she's wearing, not the fact that she's like a seven-foot-tall, orange, green-eyed alien. <laughs> well, she had read about them in People magazine. It's just, it's one of those things where it's just like, there's not even going to get mentioned. Yeah, no, I do often think that about people's interactions with Starfire. They're just like, you're so pretty. I wish you didn't dress so slutty. Mm-hmm. But if I was still seven feet tall and made of orange space fire, who knows how I'd dress. You do you. Pretty much. <laughs> who did you have as your worst titan? Take a guess. Beast Boy? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a valid choice. I, uh, I had him on my list. I think I'm slightly going with Dick because it bothers me more than it bothers you that he discounts the supernatural as an option. Yeah, I wrote his name down as Dick, no such thing as Ghost Grayson. He comes around. He You does. know who doesn't come around? Beast Boy. Mm-hmm. He maybe gets, comes around a little bit after he gets bonked on the head with that giant crystal. We'll see. I think yeah. the whole school of tough love is going to take a little while to sink in. Uh, it made me so happy when Cole filled his mouth with crystals and that her reaction was just like, not like horrified, not shocked, like just like, oh, <laughs> you silly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo did you feel was most worthy of note? I had a little more trouble in this issue than in, in issues past finding good examples. Um, I did find one in which uh, Cyborg refers to the gang of criminals that are shooting up the place as creeps. Mm-hmm. And two-bit punks. Oh, two-bit punks. Okay. Those are good. That's 50-cent punks. Two-bit yeah, Shaving two bits is... Two uh, bits. I think a bit is 25 cents. That's oh. uh, where the phrase Bitcoin comes from. Bitcoin's probably worth 25 cents. Right? I don't think that's true. No? I think that comes from bit, like bits and bytes. Mm, I agree to disagree. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, so I stretched the rules a little bit and I went with a threat rather than a outright bozo. Uh. And this is when uh, Beast Boy was tickled to make the discovery that cyborg's um childhood nickname is corky and starts trying to give him a little bit of a hard time about it and cyborg immediately shuts it down and says that if he pursues that line of humor they will be finding little pieces of him scattered all over pittsburgh Mm -hmm. he also does call him green jeans Mm g-e-n-e-s in that yeah we've seen we've seen that before yes i enjoyed that too but i decided to go with our good friend donna amasidio (laughs) Saying to her husband and the singer guy who was her crooked accountant, Mm -hmm. you are all weak and you are all fools, but I do not need you because I am strong. And then she murders three people, including a little girl. Dang. Yeah, but I mean, also, that was a pretty harsh diss. Good singer. Yeah. We've already talked about it a bit, but uh, what uh, timestamps did you find in this issue? Yeah, so we did talk about Ross McDonald, which when I looked him up, didn't seem very accurate timestamp-wise. Nope. Uh, I did make note of, on page 17, Ghostbusters. Sure, and that they specifically said if this turns out to be the sequel to Ghostbusters, that puts it after Ghostbusters came out, but before Ghostbusters 2 came out. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. But I think my favorite was when, I can't remember which grandparent it is, it's either Tucker or Maude who makes reference to the guy that was the crooked accountant that they knew back from their theater days 
as telling jokes so blue they would make Eddie Murphy blush. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. And there is, of course, also the modem talk Mm -hmm. that that we had going on. Don't worry, it won't hurt the phone. (laughs) Yeah. There were a number of pretty specific timestamps in this issue. So, good job, Issue and Corey. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, what was your favorite panel? I liked, um, what? <laughs> on page 20, pretty good. I liked that one, too. We already talked about too. it. I also, we already talked about it, too, but I liked several of the reaction shots to Naked Dick in the Hallway. Yeah, hilarious. But... I think my favorite is one that we both alluded to earlier in terms of its innovative layout. And that is when the old congressman is recalling his past indiscretions when his young wife, Donna Amasidio, murdered these people. And it's a flashback scene, but it's the whole page is a close-up of his face. You see the titans reflected in his round eyeglasses. And then from the nose down... It's two panels that are done in sepia tone of the Cannon family coming into Donna's apartment. Yeah, it looks almost as if the panels where they're coming in are like pieces of tape put over his his mouth and the lower part of his face. It's just really interesting the way that it's laid out. It's really well done and it, it's innovative, but it is also very easy to read and to know what's going on. It's innovative in a way that doesn't detract from the story at all and isn't distracting from it. It's just really, really well done. And yeah, I think that's my favorite panel. I like how the Titans in reflection in his eyeglasses look really like kind of creepy and distorted, but also like they're kind of giving him a look like, really, dude? Yeah. That was shitty of you. They're giving him the really dude look, but also it looks like maybe they're in like an old skate video because it's like a fisheye lens. <laughs> Gleaming the cube. Gleaming the cube was shot in regular style. I know, I just that's what I think of when I think of skate culture coming to the coming <laughs> to the fore. That movie was originally called My Brother's Keeper. Oh yeah? Yeah. Huh. Which, you know, makes more sense than Gleaming the Cube. Which was a made-up phrase that they used in that movie. Nobody ever said. No one has ever said outside of that movie. Well, Corey, I have but one further question I must put to you. Waput! In! The year of our Lord, 1986, and the month of our Lord, November, as we do go from the date of the reprints of these issues. What was Aqualad probably up to? Waput! So... Some of the uh, older listeners out there will remember when um, Mad Cow Disease first came into the media and, and, and was discovered. And by older, I mean like our age. Yeah, well, when was that? So that was 1986. Really? Yeah. I thought it was later than that. No, that was a, so there was a, a lab in England where uh, they first basically figured out what was going on and, and isolated the, uh, I forget, bovine encephalitis or something i forget the name of it but mad cow disease and and that it was actually creating illness in humans who were consuming the flesh of those animals so that's like a cow wendigo situation right like cows got this disease when they were being fed other cows Mm -hmm. wasn't that the source of it and isn't like the wendigo if like somebody eats human flesh then they become a skinwalker and they like kill people i don't know that but yeah sure let's go let's go with that so, so can we just call it cow wendigo disease? I would love that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story how CWD was discovered 
it seems like kind of a logical leap, right? Uh, how do you put these disparate pieces together? And so to answer that question, we have to go back to the very beginning of the month and several miles away from England to Switzerland, on the banks of the uh, where the Rhine River flows down from Germany through. And uh, Aqualad was having himself a, a nice swim along the Rhine, hmm. having a good old time, had been picking up some, some culture, was, uh, you know, out in Austria beforehand, hanging out with his buddy Falco, and um, went for a, a nice long, basically, tour of the Rhine. The timing was unfortunate that he was swimming through Switzerland when this was happening because the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz had a horrible fire at one of their plants that resulted in the dumping of approximately 35,000 gallons of chemicals into the Rhine. Oh, no. And Sandoz, some people may recall, is also the company which employed um, Albert Hoffman, discoverer of LSD-25. Oh. And yes, in fact, that was a lot of the chemicals that went into the river that Aqualad was swimming right through. So once again, similar to our, our friend Wong, massive dose, not fun at all, way too much. Aqualad kept swimming, and then he was just like, man, this is so weird. Like, I need to be on land. And uh, wound up walking all the way to England. Whoa. Just tripping balls. And found himself in the English countryside in this beautiful pastoral scene. And he was sitting there. He just wandered into this farm and uh, was watching the sun come up. And the birds were tweeting, and he's still tripping balls. And started hanging out with these cows. And he's like, hey, guys, what's going on? And one of them's like, oh, man, it's not good. They've been feeding us cows. He's like, what? Cows can't eat cows. And so basically there was this whole dialogue that went on. He got freaked out. He went to the authorities. One thing led to another. And uh, bovine wendigo disease was then discovered. Wow, what a busy young man. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to. Maybe two things that Aqualad was up to <laughs> in November of 1986. But that wasn't all he was up to. See, before he headed back to the States from England, uh, Aqualad checked in with a, an old pal of his, uh, Ibis the Invincible, uh, who lived in Egypt. And they'd been meaning to get together for quite some time. It, it had just been too long, and they just wanted to catch up. And so Aqualad was like, well, I don't think I can make it all the way to Egypt, but maybe we can meet somewhere like that's like a midway point for both of us. So they ended up meeting up in Lebanon, in Beirut. They had some coffee together. They uh, had a nice meal. They, they caught up on old times and uh, really had a nice time. While that was happening, a vital piece of information came to light. The newspaper, the Ash Shira, broke the story of the U.S. selling arms to Iran for the Iran-Contra scandal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Aqualad didn't know anything about this. This was the deal in which it finally came to light that, that Reagan's administration had been denying this for years at this point, that they had orchestrated a deal in which they would sell arms to Iran in exchange for hostages and then use the money from the arms deal to fund the uh, Contras in Nicaragua. Both of those things were illegal for them to do, and they had been denying that that had been something that they, they had done. But this Lebanese paper broke the story that they had proof that the U.S. had been selling arms to Iran. Now, Aqualad didn't know anything about that. He just wanted to get home. He was tired from the LSD <laughs> trip that he'd had Finally in wore Switzerland. Off. 
He's just tuckered out, but he swims all the way back to America. And when he crawls out of the water, the government assumes he had something to do with this deal. He was a known activist. He had had associations with Greenpeace uh, and is, you know, in general, a crime-fighting international teen. So they just figured he had something to do with this. They still thought that they could hush up elements of this story. So when Aqualab crawls out of the ocean, he was met by government agents and they're like, all right, Aqualad, we, we need to know what you know. What do you want? What do you want? He's like, uh, what do I, I don't know, want some spaghetti? Like, it's like some spaghetti, some Carbs. marinara sauce. Just want to like carbo load. And they're like, okay. And then through this game of government telephone, Aqualad saying that he wanted spaghetti with marinara sauce got all jumbled up. And that is why... On November 3rd, the U.S. government announced that they had acquired sovereign rule over the northern Mariana Islands in an attempt to appease Aqualad and keep him quiet. He just wanted some spaghetti. The old marinara trench. Yep. In the marinara islands. <laughs> oh. They always get mixed up. I know. Anyway, that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Just wanting some spaghetti. Anyway. Thanks so much for joining us, dear listener. I think you're nice. Yeah, me too. Thanks for giving us a listen. Thanks for sharing your flat circle with us. We appreciate it. If you'd like to get into touch with us, there's a couple ways you can do so. We can be reached via our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future... And you can hook a modem up to your telephone and it won't hurt your phone lines at all. We can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in uh, other aspects of the internet. The uh, the Facebook, the Tumblr, the Twitter, the uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Sea Captains Only, of course, Friendster... AOL, uh, Angel Fire, GeoCities. None of those are things. Really? Just just the first few things, guys. Well, you know, just hunt around, see what you can find. Yeah, Google it. Yeah, whatever the fisherman brings in today. It's the catch, catch of, of the, the internet. Day. Yep. Yeah. That's how they say it. Yeah, I mean, when, uh, when we're, we're trawling and spreading that internet behind you. Oh. It is reeling all the... Little fishes, and we're some of them. So thanks. Say uh, we're on lots of fish. Yeah. That's a dating website. What is? Lots of fish. It is? I think so. Is it for people who want to date fish? I don't know what it's for. Is it for Aqualad? I don't know. Okay. Because he wants lots of fish. Well, I mean, he dated a lady named Dolphin. I guess dolphins aren't technically fish. What are they? Mammals? Yeah. Hmm. You knew that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> You can also leave us. <laughs> you can also uh, leave us a review on whatever uh, listening application you're using to listen to this uh, face. This face. <laughs> and this face. <laughs> what the fuck is my brain doing? I don't know. You can also leave us a review on whatever listening application you're using to listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Just say, tighten up the defense is great, and the hosts make sense, and aren't <laughs> stupid idiots. 
Yes. Five stars. Five stars. Not stupid idiots. <laughs> Not even a little bit. They know what time is. Flat circle. Is it? You can also donate to the show monetarily if you would like to, and I frankly would like you to, if, if, if you can afford to, at uh, patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, including at least weekly videos that I've been making. I've been trying to do more than one a week where I talk about classic comic books. Just started doing a series where I talk about my relationship to Roy Thomas's relationship to nostalgia. Uh, you also get access to the monthly podcast that I host with Lisa called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's our show about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. And there's a bunch of other bonus material on there if you uh, if you donate. But mostly it's just a nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. We're going to try to keep going without any disruption in your access to our thoughts. But uh, Corey's taking a big trip pretty soon. He's going to be spending some months elsewhere. Yes. We're going to use our modems, and hopefully they won't injure our phone lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're going to try to record remotely. And so we're going to do our best, and hopefully there won't be an interruption. But if there is, eh, please bear with us. Yes, thank you. In summation, thank you. We think you're nice, and we are not stupid idiots. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what is it, Steel? I'm trying to record a show here. It's fucking audio chemtrails. <laughs> Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> Come on, sheeple. Why are they so sleepy? <laughs> Probably counting themselves. Oh. Yeah. That's why the sheep need to wake up. Wow. Yeah. That's heavy. Wheels within wheels, man. Mm. I still know all of the pip parts to Midnight Train to Georgia. Yeah? A superstar, but he didn't get far. Ooh. Uh-uh, ooh, uh-uh. <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. Yep, that's, that's most of them. <laughs> wow, I'm, that's three more than I know. Thank you.